and today we are going to discuss the life of Noor Inayat Khan or Nora Baker, the British spy of Indian origin, the descendant of Tipu Sultan. Bravery ran through her blood and her veins. It was during the Second World War that she was sent as a wireless operator in Nazi-occupied France. And every day she endangered her life to fight for humanity. We lost her eventually in Dachau in a concentration camp. But life would have been really different if she could have managed to come out of that chaos. Noor wasn't fighting for herself, but she was fighting to save humanity. And all of this would have remained unknown if not for Shravani Basu, who has done an intensive research on the life of Nuranayat Khan and come out with a beautiful book on her life, The Spy Princess, The Life of Nuranayat Khan. And we are fortunate to have Shravani joining us from right from UK to tell us more about her research and the life of Nuranayat. Shravani Basu is a journalist, author and a historian who combined her love for journalism and her love for history. And all her books have evolved from her observation about the sheer history of India and Britain. Her books include The Mystery of the Parsi Lawyer, Arthur Conan Doyle, which is just recently released and I'm eager to read it. Can't really wait. The other books include George Adalji and the Case of the Foreigners in the English Village, For King and Another Country, Indian Soldiers on the Western Front, 1914 to 1918, Victoria and Abdul, The True Story of the Queen's Closest Confidant, which has also been made into a beautiful movie. Curry, the story of nation's favorite dish. And the spy princess, the life of Noor and Ayat Khan. And we are fortunate and it is an absolute delight to have you on the platform, Shrabani. Thank you so much for joining in. Hi, Anushree. Good to be here. Thank you so much, Shrabani. And before we start, could you please give us a little context for uh, the audience who are not aware of Noor and then we can continue with the question answer session. Sure. Um, well, who is uh, Noor Inayat Khan? For those of you who don't know, so this is Noor Inayat Khan. Who is this mysterious woman? She was actually born to an Indian father. His name is Hazrat Inayat Khan and he was from Baroda. He played the Veena, he was a musician, he was a Sufi. And he was told by his teacher to take Sufism to the West. So he's the first person who takes Sufism to the West. He goes, um, he goes to the U.S. and uh, he takes his brothers with him. So these these are his, you know, his brothers, and they're all musicians. They tour the country. They um, they call themselves the Royal Musicians of Hindustan. And while he's on tour in the U.S., he meets this beautiful lady called Ora Ray Baker and they fall in love. So these are Noor's parents, um, Hazrat Inayat Khan and Ora Ray Baker. And uh, they get married, uh, you know, going, moving through her life. It's in 1914 that Hazrat Inayat Khan gets uh, invited to go to Moscow uh, for a concert. And it is here that uh, you can see this is, I mean, she takes the name of Amina Begum. This is her mother now wearing a sari. Um, and they traveled to Moscow, and it's in 1914 that Noor is born. You can see her here, little, uh, he calls her Babuli. So this is baby Noor. 
But of course, trouble is brewing in 1914 in Moscow. So the family leave again. Um, they pack up, they go to London where they live in Gordon Square. And uh, three more children are born. So this is baby Noor who's sort of mothering all her children, uh, all her siblings, sorry. Uh, so this is Vilayat second and the other two are called Hidayat and Kherun Nisa who is just called Claire. So this family, they lived there through the First World War and uh, finally 1920, uh, they decide to move to France. So this is where Noor is going to grow up. They get they are given this beautiful family house. Uh, it's called Fazal Manzil, House of Blessing. It's on the outskirts of Paris, and it is here that Noor grows up. Her upbringing is very genteel. She's a musician. Uh, the whole family, you know, the children play there. They dress in their Indian clothes. Uh, they are musicians. So Noor plays the harp. Her brother Vilayat plays the cello. Uh, Hidayat plays the violin. Uh, Claire plays the piano. They form a quartet. Uh, they give uh, concerts in Fazal Manzil. Um, the, it is also the Sufi center. So Sufis are coming in. It's a house of meditation and music. Uh, but Hazrat Inayat Khan suddenly feels he misses India and he wants to go back. So he returns to India. Uh, but <clears throat> excuse me, unfortunately, he dies there. So suddenly this family, you know, tragedy hits this family. Her mother locks herself up in her room. She is absolutely, she goes into depression. And Noor becomes in charge of looking after her brothers and sisters. So from a very early age, she is, you know, she has to take responsibility, sacrifice her childhood in a way. And uh, here she tries to draw out her mother from mourning. She writes lovely poems to cheer her up. Uh, she gets her mother out of her bedroom, again, back in Western clothes, tries to resume normal life. And um, uh, she herself is a musician. She plays the veena. This is in Fazal Manzil in the Oriental Room. And uh, she, this family is descended from Tipu Sultan. So there is, you know, in this room, there's a, also a photograph of Mala Baksh, Tipu. And um, the father, Hazrat Inayat Khan, would tell them, you have the blood of Tipu in your veins. So I think that gave a lot of courage to Noor. So I just want to set up her background so that, you know, when we discuss this later, we, we know where she's coming from and what makes her what she is. Um, so this is Noor as a young adult. She is now a writer of children's stories. She's published her first book. It's called The 20 Jataka Tales, a retelling of the Buddhist fables. And But this is 1939 and war clouds are gathering in Europe. Um, no, you know, her dreams of becoming a writer of children's stories is going to be dashed. She is um, <clears throat> here as a young adult. This is probably one of the last photos of all four siblings together. Uh, they uh, gather together, but she and Vilayat decide in 1940 with the German army about to enter Paris. Uh, they decide that uh, they can't stand back and watch. Though they are Sufis, though they believe in nonviolence, they must join. Uh, they must do something. And uh, Vilayat suggests that they go to England. They volunteer for the war effort. Um, so this is just the background. And, you know, they come to London. You can see London in the Blitz, a very different scene. And Noor volunteers for the Women's Auxiliary Air Force. Um, so I'm going to stop sharing my screen here. And I just wanted to set up the little background to Noor till she's arrived 
in London. And, you know, this is when the next stage of her story really begins. So back to, back to you, Anushree. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for setting the context. Now it'll be easier for us to go ahead with Noor's life. Mm -hmm. So as you were telling, uh, Noor had a Sufi upbringing. Mm -hmm. You know, she was introduced to the books of philosophy, to the books of bravery at very early age in her life uh, through her father. So do you think what Noor became later is, has the, the, this exposure of her to this, these books played a critical role in shaping her future? Oh, absolutely. Because as I said, our father used to say, you have the blood of Tipu Sultan in your veins. And Noor was brought up with very strong uh, values of loyalty, telling the truth, uh, you know, chivalry, things like this, which her father had sort of, you know, this is what the Sufi preachings of her father used to be, plus tolerance of all religions. That was very important. Her father would light a candle to every religion every day. So they would light these candles and hold their Sufi ceremonies. Uh, so this is the background she comes from. And when she joins up, when she comes to London, she joins up for the WAF. Uh, you saw her in that lovely uniform, uh, yes. which she loves. She's suddenly uh, very liberated. She's now no longer the, you know, grand title of Pirzadi Nurun Nisa Inayat Khan. She just registers herself as Nora, Nora Inayat Khan, because Nora is easier to pronounce. And Nora yes. is, uh, is a take on Noor, plus it's like her mother's name, Aura. So she sort of mixes them and okay. just says, says Nora. And um, she trains as a radio operator. Uh, and she's now just a number, you know, from these grand titles, this, you know, very grand house they live in. She is living in a small, you know, training center with all her WAF colleagues. And she actually feels very free in many ways. She feels quite liberated, as many women did during the war. She felt she's doing something. Uh, and she trains as this radio operator. First time that women are being trained in this very dangerous right. Which we can talk about later. Yeah. Uh, the book also describes uh, Noor as a very vulnerable, innocent, naive character. Uh, but we also see a kind of relentlessness in her, a kind of, uh, you know, that I have to do it and I will do it. Some yes. of her colleagues also tell her maybe that you are very vulnerable, you're not on the right track. Although uh, she was very good in whatever she was doing. How mm -hmm. did you think that Noor managed this bravery? Like, where did mm -hmm. it all come from? Well, again, it comes from the family background. And there is a steely side to Noor right from the beginning. You know, she uh, <laughs> she has to look after all her siblings, you know, when her mother goes into mourning. So she, her brother, you know, I interviewed the family and her brother would say, you know, she was quite bossy. She would boss us around because we were three naughty children, which, you know, is absolutely natural. So she is right. like the... She's the buddy didi, you know, as we know it. Mm. Uh, and she's going to have to look after all these people, which she does. Um, also, it's, you know, what reveals her character is her first interview that she has. Now, while she's training in the WAF, uh, which is the Women's uh, Air Force, she is being watched by a very secret organization called the Special Operations Executive. And this is an organization set up by Churchill. It is set up to send agents into occupied areas in Europe and their job is to help these people who are working with the resistance so they have to supply them with arms they help sabotage railway lines they supply them with money and they get them out if they are injured so all these sort of clandestine operations is what this this unit does 
and uh, Noor is sent a letter because uh, they notice in her, you know, in her uh, notes that she's fluent in French. And of course, she's training as a radio operator. So yeah. they, she's perfect to go into France because she speaks French fluently. But at her interview, which is, a, you know, she finds it really strange because there's a man there and he's just sitting one person. She thinks it's for the Air Force and she might get a promotion. But the man at the interview asks her, speaks to her in French. And then he tells her that you are going to be sent as a secret agent to France. And if you are caught, you will be shot because you're not going to be in uniform and you have no protection. Uh, right. And will you take the job? And she immediately says, yes. Uh, and it's not a knee-jerk reaction because then she writes a letter and it's one of my favorite letters, which is in the book as well, uh, that, you know, all these, you may think, you know, why I want to join this war effort is because how important it is to win this war. Uh, and all, I was worried about my mother, but all our family ties are very petty compared to how important winning this war is. So she's ready to put, you know, sacrifice all that. She knows her mother will be heartbroken. She will be heartbroken leaving her mother uh, but she knows that it's important to defeat Hitler, important to defeat fascism, yes. and she must do this. So um, at a very yeah. young, at a very early age, she's very focused. Right. Um, she was also engaged, or I would say she was in a relationship with mm -hmm. a person for almost six years, mm -hmm. and she didn't know how to break up. It was almost like a traumatizing experience for her for all these years. Mm -hmm. But she was very confident that she's going to go to this war. Can you please explain the contrast in her character about not being decisive about her own personal life, but she was quite sure that this is what, what I want to do for humanity. Well, actually, I wouldn't agree with you. I think she's actually very decisive about her personal life. Her family objects. She falls in love with a musician. So just to give the background, uh, he's a Jewish musician um, and she's very much in love with him. But the family object, they think he's very domineering and he's, um, you know, especially reliable. He objects to her. But um, she doesn't give up. You know, so that's the main thing. She she carries on with him. This relation continues. They are sort of unofficially engaged for six years. But it's only when the war breaks out uh, that she has to she uh, has Paris. And then she knows it's over. So, you know, yeah. she does. That's how, at that time. that's how she took the final decision that this is the time I have to go and yes, save the Absolutely. World. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. So Noor in her interviews. Uh, the her colleagues or her inst instructors were not really keen that Noor can go ahead with the mission, but still Noor was sent mm -hmm. on on you know on a priority basis that she has to be. Uh, what does it say about the lapse in the system? Or they were so desperate to just send mm -hmm. somebody, whoever it is, mm -hmm. uh, so that they can get some information out of uh, the Nazi-occupied France. Yeah. So what happens is that some, her, this is the people, her, her seniors, the people who recruited her, they see in her a person who has determination. They see her strong character and they see also that she is a really good wireless operator. So there's two things. They see strength of character and they mm -hmm. see the wireless operator. She has some colleagues who feel that she's not right for the job because of her background. They say she's very dreamy, which she is. She's, you know, forgetful because she's a writer, a musician. Um, mm. She's not somebody who's happy with a gun. Uh, all of this is also true. 
So obviously these are contrasts in her character. You know, she's not somebody who's trigger happy, go out there, shoot the Germans. That's not Noor. Uh, but Noor is also somebody who's very steady, who's very loyal, and who is very determined uh, and a good operator. And because these radio operators uh, were, is the most dangerous area, the men were just, you know, their life expectancy well, was about six weeks. So they were dropping like flies, basically. Mm. And so they were desperate for radio operators because radio messages are the most important. That's the only link yes. you're going to have, right, for everything. Yes. So they decide to, they do, she doesn't even finish her training. She's sent into France. Mm. She flies in on a full moon night. She joins her circuit. But within a week, her circuit is like exposed. Somebody is informed on them and it's all blown. It's called circuit is blown. So lots of her colleagues are arrested. And she is told by London that you have to come back. It's very dangerous. Uh, but Noor being Noor says, no, I'm the last link left between London and Paris. And I'm going to stay on. And I'm going to rebuild this circuit, which she does. She goes underground. She meets up with other agents. And she slowly starts rebuilding the circuit. And she is sending these important messages. And, you know, doing all the work that the yeah. agents do. She's combining the job of six radio operators in one person and uh, you know for your reader uh, for your viewers i can explain why this radio is so dangerous because um, it's in a suitcase actually so it's uh, she has carried the suitcase around uh, it's also got a long aerial like about 15 meters of aerial that has to be put up so that's yeah. dangerous spot you so when she's carrying this on the metro she can be spotted and anyone can come up to her and say you know gestapo what are you doing what are you carrying and she'll be arrested right uh, also, they can when she transmits, they can hear her. So it's going on the airwaves, and they can start coming, you know, enclosing the area. They can hear the tap, tap, taps, and they come close, and they can arrest you within minutes because the German listening devices, you know, they sit in vans and they listened at this mm -hmm. time to radio, uh, radio sounds, and uh, they could catch her. So what she had to do is go to a spot send a message and leave as fast as possible. Send the message correctly, get out of there and go. And she kept doing it. She would change her hair. She changed her appearance. Uh, she used different addresses, her family, you know, family friends, mm -hmm. uh, her school teacher, her doctor. She would just land up at their house and say, you know, I need to send a message. And mm -hmm. she would do that. Um, so, of course, she's literally living on the edge and the Germans are out to get her. But... Um, you know, she manages to survive. She would have survived for, she survives for three months, whereas her colleagues uh, went down and got arrested uh, in six weeks. So you can imagine the difference. So suddenly this gentle dreamer, you know, a Sufi, a musician is transformed. And she's a tigress in the field. She is a different person. She runs fast. She, um, there's a little incident, which I love, where she has to send an urgent message. So she has to put up her, you know, the aerial she just goes outside her apartment, puts up this aerial on a tree. And as she's doing it, she hears a voice saying, excuse me, mademoiselle. And she turns around and an SS officer standing behind her. And she just has to talk her way out of it. She turns on all her charm and she says, oh, I just wanted to listen to a radio station. Uh, and she names a band radio station. So it's like she's doing something mm. naughty, but not that naughty. Yes. And, um, you know, this German, he just melts. He has this beautiful woman. He, he says, I love <laughs> And he puts up the wire for her. So, you know, yeah. half, she's transmitting to London. 
So you can see how, you know, she's thinking on her feet. She is just moving around. She's doing all the work. She would have returned to London um, if she had not been betrayed. So this is. Yeah, that's the sad part of the story. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Noor has always been very truthful in her interviews also. And uh, she, she, you have mentioned in the book that uh, in her first interview, when she was being selected for this as a special agent to go into the field, uh, she said that I'm all out for Indian independence as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So she's, she's asked, yeah, she's asked yeah. in the interview. So this is 1942. And this is the time when, you know, Quit India movement has happened in India. The freedom movement is up like in fourth gear. All the Congress leaders have been arrested during the war. They spent the whole war um, in jail. And so Noor is very aware of what's going on in India. She's a great admirer of Gandhi, Nehru and the freedom struggle. And she tells them, they ask her, on whose side would your loyalties lie in this war? And she's very frank. She says, at this moment, it is important to win this war. So I'm on your side. I volunteer for this war. But when the war is over, I believe in Indian freedom and I will join the freedom struggle. And she is just completely frank. And they are shocked at her frankness because she, you know, she just says the truth as she always says she yeah. will. Um, so uh, she's then recruited into the, into the secret, you know, the SOE. So she doesn't really progress in, in the Women's Auxiliary Air Force. But uh, yes, she tells this whole panel that she will fight for Indian independence which is amazing, you know, if you think about it. Yeah. And, uh, but on the other hand, she made a colleague of her to write letters to her mother that she is okay, she's doing well. You know, that was kind of a clash of interest because she had to lie to her mother to take care of her. That yes. was the caring side of her. Well, on the other hand, she was straightforward to people where she knew that I have to say the truth yes. and uh, I can betray that. Of course. You see, she couldn't tell her family where she's going. So it's completely secret. They have no idea that she's gone abroad, that she's actually in France, that she's doing this dangerous job. She just says, oh, it's I'm in the fannies, which was a sort of nursing and yeomanry. So they think she's just going to do some nursing, which is a far cry from what she's doing, you know, in the field with a false passport and a gun and everything else. Um, mm. So um, she... But she needs her mother. She knows that her mother is very fragile. So she just says, just keep sending letters that I'm yeah. okay. Uh, because she can't write to her directly. So she does that. Um, so it's it's not even, you know, she's sensitive. She's practical. She knows what she has right. to do. And she know you know, out there, she's a different person. But she'll protect whoever she can. So that is always her. Right. Uh, could you also please tell us about your research method? I know you are a journalist and that would have helped you a lot. But how did you go about collecting these facts which you, you know, were dumped into reports? And where all did you go? How did you just manage to collate this book? Um, it took a long time. It took about three, nearly four years. Uh, but um, so, well, you know, it's like uh, it's a lot of research that goes into my work. So I looked at the first starting point is her, the British government had just declassified her files, the Secret Service files, and they are in the National Archives. So they are then accessible to the public. So I went to the National Archives. And these are the documents which show how she's recruited, how she's trained. So they're really valuable. Her messages from the field, they even have the telegrams from the field, um, the Nazi interrogation afterwards. So everything, a lot of the material is from these files, obviously. 
then I had to read the files of all her colleagues to see, you know, because sometimes a message that she sent is not in the, her file, it's in the other file. So you have to put together this giant jigsaw puzzle, really. Um, I spoke to, interviewed her friends who were alive. Luckily, there were a few alive at that time, uh, people from the WAF. I interviewed her family, and that was very important because I spoke to her brothers. Uh, both Vilayat and Hidayat were alive. Uh, and, uh, you know, that they gave me her background, everything. So then you just put the whole story together as to where she's coming from, what is taking right. her into this journey, and what is she doing in the field. God, that's a lot of work you have done. And thank you so much for bringing us. Otherwise, it would have just, uh, you know, unknown to the generations to come. Uh, also, you have set up the trust for Noor. <laughs> Mm -hmm. uh, could you please yeah. explain explain how it came up and how did you manage to set up a trust for her? That's a big right. thing. Yeah. Well, what happened is basically it came from my readers. As soon as the book was out, I was getting so much mail. You know, the postman would drop that much mail every day. <laughs> and they were just letters from people who just loved uh, the book. And they said, why don't we know about her? Why didn't we know about Noor? Because she was awarded the George Cross. You know, she was killed in Dachau. It's a, it's a very... Um, it's a very tragic story, but it's also very inspiring. And so people wanted to know more. And uh, then they, so then I felt, okay, you know, uh, we should do something for this. And yes. who else is going to do it but me? You know, I've carried this burden, so I've got to do it. So I set up, uh, first I applied for a blue plaque. A blue plaque is a little blue sign you have outside doors uh, in UK, which tells you that a person lived there. They're very nice. You know, you walk down London and you see a plaque saying, T.S. Eliot lived here or, you know, Virginia Woolf lived there, okay. even Rammo and Roy, you know, there's a plaque for him in Bedford Square. So wow. uh, it's uh, it's very nice. It tells you the years they lived there. Tagore has a plaque. So okay. many people, no women had a plaque, no Indian women. So I found that, you know, a big gap. And I said, you know, she yeah. needs a plaque. Yes. It took a long time. And then I also campaigned for a memorial for her because people were saying, you need a memorial. So I've never done any of this. So I set up a trust because, you know, then it becomes a yeah. big thing. You have to raise money. You set up a charity, do all these things. And we got the permission. And in two years, it was unveiled by Princess Anne. So that was very wow. nice. Um, yeah, and it was, the, it was the first memorial for an Indian woman in the UK in a public space. Um, and then last year, I unveiled the blue plaque, which is outside her house in Tabaton Street. So... Um, so the plaque and the memorial are, you know, they're just within two minutes of each other, which is very nice. <laughs> and uh, it's a little yes. bit of London where she lived, where she worked as a secret agent and various things. So, yeah. That's so beautiful. Uh, last but not the least, uh, Shravani, what do you think would have uh, uh, would have been different if, if Noor Anayat Khan would have made it alive <laughs> from the war? She would have come back. How do you just imagine as a writer? Well, she would have told her own story, isn't it? She was a writer. <laughs> she, uh, she would have written children's stories. She would have used to compose music. We would have heard music and we would have heard her own story. So, yes, there's a big gap there. Yeah, um, um, yeah she isn't there. So, uh, we, we tell her story now and, and you know, hope yeah. that it goes around the world, which I think it has because a lot of people, I get letters from people from the US to you know, Singapore, school children, college children wanted to do projects on her, people who just loved the story. Some people saying, 
we had to have an operation and we were so scared and then we read about Noor and she gave me courage. So, you know, that's a really lovely yeah. thing to read yeah. that gave courage to somebody who was very ill from cancer and they thought of Noor and they had courage. So I get letters from all over the world and um, it's very, very nice. <laughs> Thank um, you so much, Shravani, for giving us the beautiful story of Noor and all the very best for your new book. And for our viewers, I'll be sharing the link to Shravani's new book. Please do go to the site and buy it right now because I'm sure it's going to be really interesting. Thank you, Shravani, for joining us right from all the way from UK. <laughs> well, we're just on the end of phone calls now, aren't we? Yeah, we are very connected in so many ways. But yeah, thank you. Thanks a lot. And yes, um, thank you, everybody who's listening. Right. Thank you Take so care. much. Bye. 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 -bye.